as we've crossed over from 2013 to 2014, news organizations have been engaging in the annual practice of sharing crime rates in major U.S. cities compared to the year before. With respect to gun violence and homicides, rates are down, in some cases dramatically. So what does it all mean? Well, I doubt you'll see anyone concerned with this issue doing a victory dance, and communities continue to look for deeper and broader solutions to lives cut short and what the criminal justice system alone or better policing have to offer. Into this mix, we're hearing more about the role that healthcare can play and is playing in a number of major cities. And it's about more than better identifying people with mental disorders who might become violent, although that's important. It's the day-to-day vulnerability to being impacted by or resorting to gun violence, often among the young and often gang-related, that many in healthcare, especially those who work in emergency departments, have come to know too well and are working with others in the community to address. So that's what we're going to learn more about on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Health Care Improvement. We're into our sixth year, year of coming to you bi-weekly and also for your later listening and some convenience via IHI.org on, on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. A new year always brings with it a new resolve to tackle societal problems, hopefully tapping into fresh ideas. What caught my attention in planning today's WIHI is how each of the guests we're going to hear from has been in the trenches of connecting dots about gun violence for quite some time, long before we might frame their work as part of population health. So we're going to be doing some catching up and hopefully advancing work to reduce gun violence by looking at approaches, especially where healthcare might play a crucial role. So that's where we're headed, starting with introduction, but introductions. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier, who's here with me in the studio, with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI today. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Um, just a few items for, to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that will take place in the chat. We keep the chat closed during the beginning of our conversation, but open it up after about 20 minutes or so for all of you to share your questions and comments. Now, once the chat is open, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. This will allow Madge and our guests in the studio to see your questions and comments as well as everybody listening in on the WebEx. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto a computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send me a quick message, the host, in the chat. And a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the player and then press play again. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know there's a slide up on the screen right now with their number. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I'll provide a direct download link. They'll be posted at our archive at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thank you, John. And I always love to say to all of those, all of you who like to send tweets, uh, please do so at the IHI is our Twitter handle. And if you can include the 
hashtag, hashtag IHI in your tweets. We can bring others from the improvement community who follow IHI into the conversation. So let me now briefly introduce our guests. And as always, I want to remind you that they have longer biographies and all sorts of achievements that you can find uh, if you search their own organizations. And we put that on our own WIHI web pages. Uh, first, I would like to extend a warm welcome to Dr. Thea James, locally and nationally known for her leadership on reducing gun violence. Dr. James is an emergency medicine physician at Boston Medical Center, and we almost got her over into our studio today another time, but she did get to us now by phone. Welcome, Dr. James. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. It's great. All right. All right. It's wonderful to have you. Our other guests are also joining us by phone, starting with Rachel Davis, who's Managing Director at Prevention Institute, based in Oakland, California. Rachel oversees the Institute's work on preventing violence and promoting community health and health equity. I also want to welcome Rachel, and we'll get your bio up there in just a second. Um, Rachel, are you there? I am. Thanks so much, and hi, everyone. Okay. Hi, everyone back. Okay. Heading down the coast to Southern California is Kylie Schilling, the director of the Violence Prevention Coalition of Greater Los Angeles. That's an umbrella organization. Membership includes government agencies, nonprofits, and individuals committed to ending the epidemic of violence in Los Angeles County. Kylie brings over a decade of experience working with this and with nonprofits. Hi, Kylie. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. And finally, someone who thinks fondly of Southern California on cold New England days, Gilbert Salinas, currently a 2013-2014 Institute for Healthcare Improvement Kaiser Permanente Safety Net Fellow out in California. Gilbert is the Director of Patient and Community Relations at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center. He has a long and strong history working on violence prevention. Welcome, Gilbert. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, everyone. Okay, great. I Now, Gilbert, remind me, are you in Colorado today, or what state are you in today? You're traveling. I am in sunny Colorado at uh, Clinica Campesina Community Health Centers. All right. Wonderful. All right. Well, terrific. All right. So here's what we're going to do as an opener. And I'm asking, I'm going to round the horn very fast, and I'm asking for quick answers from each of you. I'm going to start with you, Thea. James, what's the one thing you've recently learned from your work that would surprise some of our listeners today? We've got uh, over 300 involved, and we hope the uh, numbers increase. The one thing you've recently learned from your work that might surprise listeners today, maybe even something that they may not be aware of um, with the current publicity and discussion about drops in crime rates. Thea, let me start with you. Well, the one thing I would say, and I'm, and, uh, I'm saying this because I would imagine that um, maybe many of the listeners don't know that this exists, but I would say that uh, the one thing that we have learned is that having uh, that the emergency department is um, a unique place and presents a, a unique opportunity for reducing um, youth violence by uh, uh, presenting an opportunity to make an intervention. You have a very captive audience in the emergency department because this is where uh, young people who are, sh- who are injured violently uh, arrive and they are in a very vulnerable moment in their life. And I, we have found that by using a trauma-informed approach, uh, to engage uh, young victims of violence, you can uh, help them with uh, with their recovery and uh, 
both physically and emotionally and uh, by providing them with skills and services and opportunities so that they can return to their communities and make positive changes in their lives. And obviously, this contributes to building uh, safer and healthier um, communities. And I might also add that, just to explain what trauma-informed means. Go back. Well, you know what, Thea? I'm going to – don't have – I hope you won't find me rude. Hold that thought because we, oh, re- we, we really do want to know what uh, trauma-informed care is. So thank you for just that quick okay. – we're doing a kind of round-robin here, and then we're going to come sure. back to each of you. Rachel, what's the one thing you've recently learned that might surprise people today? You know, for the last eight years, we've been working with cities across the country to prevent violence before it occurs through our Unity Initiative. And at the beginning, our partners at UCLA School of Public Health did an assessment of violence prevention in U.S. cities. And through the interviews they did with mayors, police chiefs, school superintendents, and public health directors, as well as a review of violence data in a third of the largest cities, they found that the cities that had the most coordination and communication across those sectors and with others also had the lowest rates of violence. So the notion of coming together, working on this problem, is really correlated with better outcomes. And that's really informed a lot of the work we've done with cities. And increasingly, we see more and more cities implementing this coordinated, multi-sector approach to prevent violence. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. Kylie, one thing you that might surprise listeners, uh, just kind of quickly. Sure, and uh, I'm going to echo a bit of uh, of, of Rachel's uh, point about about collaboration. And I think one thing that surprised me uh, get, getting into this um, was how often folks assume that gun violence is not their issue. Um, that uh, that it is it belongs to gun safety advocates, and it does not belong to it's not the primary issue of gang interventionists or or hospitals, uh, and and that there's a, a, a definite resistance to engaging on that. And uh, a lot of our work has been around educating, you know, as Rachel said, that, that really we are more effective when we see this collaboratively and uh, and bringing people on board to understand that gun violence um, doesn't belong just to your typical gun violence advocates. It's really an issue that belongs to everyone. Okay. Thank you. Gilbert, uh, you, you kind of get the last word, at least on this round robin, and I think we'll just use this as a segue, excuse me, a segue uh, for for you to kind of set the scene for us today in terms of uh, why you feel we're, we're having this discussion. You were part of uh, helping me really frame this entire thing, and um, I think pretty much know everyone on this call today. <laughs> and, um, you know, your, your journey has uh, – talk about connecting dots. It's connected a lot of people. So uh, let me turn things over to you and uh, take a few minutes to, uh, uh, you know, share some remarks. Thank you, Mitch. Um, you know, I just want to point out that one thing that really surprises me is that we have so much data that points uh, to violence as a contrib- contributor to an unhealthy environment and community, uh, yet I feel that our nation is not doing enough to address it and to shift that paradigm. Um, and in my own personal journey, um, it began after being shot at the young age of 17. I found it very hard for myself to navigate through my disability and the world around me, a world that's not really designed for someone uh, destined to spend the rest of their life in a wheelchair. Now, I to this uh, overwhelming feeling of being uh, treated and streeted, I like to call it. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a, a saying when 
somebody comes into a hospital facility for a gunshot wound or a violent injury, and they get patched up and stitched up, and they get and they get sent right back into the same environment that was unhealthy to begin with. Um, I had great care as an inpatient. I had all the resources that I needed. But outside of my healthcare organization, there really was no medical case plan for treating the violence around my community. There was no systems approach. We don't do rounding in our communities. There's no bundles for patients or healthy indicators that measure the violence in my neighborhood. And there's definitely no discussion about the social determinants of health. Um, so when I, I reflect on my own experience, I think about the people that were very instrumental um, in, in, in my process of change. Um, and I go back to some of my mentors like uh, Billy Weiss, and uh, I, I, I think about uh, my, one of my physicians, Dr. Luis Montes, uh, who helped me uh, get involved with the great organization, Youth Alive, um, caught in the crossfire. An organization that really helped to nurture uh, my thinking around how to create a systemic approach uh, to preventing this violence and really following our patients out into the community. Um, I also had great experiences um, through, through my journey in violence prevention um, in addressing some of these cases. I brought today, I brought a few different examples, some low-hanging low fruit, if you will, uh, ways that um, healthcare organizations can really partner with communities um, so I'll ask John to um, put up my, my first picture slide, if you will. This is Bunch Middle story, School? Yeah. The story uh, depicted in this picture um, goes back to um, students during summer school sleeping in the classroom. The first assumption is that they're up all night playing video games. But the reality is when asked... Why are you sleeping in the classroom? It's very heartbreaking to hear a kid say, I'm sleeping in the classroom because I can't sleep at night due to all the gunshots I keep hearing. So for us as an organization, we found that it was very important to go out into the community. Um, so this was a collaboration between Rancho Los Amigos Company and by school district, community-based organizations um, out in, in the community, parents, and the, the hook was to get people to, to come, and we had a food bank. Um, all kids had a, a backpack filled with school supplies. Um, there was a help there. And then parents were assigned uh, to enroll in classes um, based around violence prevention and some of the things they can do at home. There was on-site counseling for the kids. And this picture really depicts what, what it looks like when you bring a community together. It's that partnership. Um, it's, it's healthcare, it's community-based organizations, it's going out to um, the educational system, because it really takes all of us um, to create a healthy environment. And these are some of the ways that we were able to uh, commit. What were, out, what were the outcomes um, uh, for, for this summer and, and the following summer? But there was no violent injuries to any um, student um, at Bunch Middle School compared to years prior. Um, so it was a, a great success for us, and we continued on that track. Um, now I want to also point out um, my second uh, picture, um, which is a wheelchair basketball game. Did you see that on the screen? Yes, it's here. Yeah. But I want to tell the story here about how, um, once again, low-hanging fruit at your own home health organization, um, 
in this picture, you're seeing our CEO that's committed to playing sports, which are sports with patients every single Thursday. Um, it's the gentleman with the, with the red circle over him, Jorge, our CEO. Um, every Thursday, uh, committed. We started with a group of six patients, and this picture was taken four months later um, with the court spread out. Um, and, uh, and on the court, of course, we have lots of fun. Um, there's teamwork, there's uh, friendships that happen, but the magic really happens on the sidelines when patients are talking with each other, when there's peer mentoring going on, when they're talking about social events, when they're talking about jobs, when they're talking about keeping each other healthy, how to prevent a pressure ulcer, how to prevent a urinary, urinary tract infection. All these things are happening just around one particular basketball game. At Rancho Los Amigos, we've learned that um, for some patients, being involved with arts programs is important. Um, our No Barriers Peer Mentoring Program, Patient Advisory Councils, and their involvement um, at, a, at, a, at having a leadership uh, at our facility has really helped not only them, but us as staff to, to work with patients on issues related to violence. Um, so these are just some, some examples mm -hmm. of, of some of some of the, the ways we can partner with patients. We talk a lot about asking patients the question, what matters to you? So I just want to end with, with, with the response to that question. What if your patient asks you, what matters to me is living in an environment that's violent free? What matters to me is not going home and getting beat up by my husband. What matters to me is not getting shot again. And these are some of the, the issues that we have to start connecting the dots with. Mm -hmm. We really have to start looking at this issue collaboratively. And uh, I'm very excited to hear um, the rest of the panelists uh, today because I think this is a great start to a great conversation. Wow. Thank you so much, Gilbert. I really appreciate it. We're also showing, um, for those of you who are on the phone and not logged in, uh, we're showing a nice slide that in addition to Gilbert's photos, we have some resources uh, that he listed. All our resources, as John said earlier, we assemble them on a resource document that's available uh, on the website uh, by the next morning. So don't get too caught up in having to write down all these links. They're all there for you. Okay. Thanks, uh, Gilbert. Don't go away. Kylie, I'm going to turn to you next. Um, so I'm wondering, is the Violence Prevention Coalition of Greater Los Angeles in some respects the embodiment of what Gilbert is uh, describing? Um, in what ways has that been effective and how has the healthcare uh, perspective or the healthcare community itself been important to the efforts that you're working on? Kylie. Sure, thank you. And uh, I, I would say I think we, we certainly aspire to be um, uh, what Gilbert was talking about. We, we have a 23-year history of working in the community. As you mentioned in the beginning, the, the Violence Prevention Coalition is an umbrella organization. We have right now over 130 members. Uh, those are organizations and individuals. Uh, including government agencies and nonprofits, faith-based, community-based, uh, academics, um, all part of the coalition, and, and the work really is is sort of the unifying uh, belief of the coalition is is reframing violence as an issue of public health uh, rather than an issue of criminal justice. Um, so as we're talking about on the call today, really shifting the emphasis from reacting to violence and responding to violence to 
investing yeah. in preventing violence. And and some of, you know, as I mentioned off the top, uh, some of those efforts have really been around bringing some of the communities together, um, sharing information, and, and bringing together cross-field conversations. One of the things we did last year um, in the wake of the Newtown, Connecticut shooting uh, was we had a lot of members who were really engaged in school safety and school discipline reform and uh, and we worked with them to talk about you know how how can we engage those who are doing school to prison pipeline work uh, in gun violence prevention work um, so so that's sort of an example of, of where we we are we're bringing together organizations and, and trying to align some of the the efforts we're we're doing a project right now in partnership with the city attorney's office and a number of domestic violence uh, providers to to talk about how to get guns out of the house uh, where there's uh, domestic violence. Uh, incidents um, and and through all of this again using that health framing um, is really really essential um, because it, it really helps uh, everybody sort of get on the same page and really emphasize collecting data um, looking at what works and 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 uh, you know it provides a bit of an, a neutral frame uh, where people can come together and it really makes it about health um, you know again not about you know criminalizing but but really how how do we talk about this as, as a health issue I think as Gilbert said um, so effectively uh, this idea of a, a medical case plan for treating violence in communities that, that if we really use that framing uh, we'll we'll start to emphasize prevention um, one of the things that's been important for us is is to, to get some of that hospital data uh, and I think uh, and I can sure Rachel can talk more to this but um, but getting data to to make the case for prevention can often be very challenging, um, and and one of the the numbers I like to talk about a lot is is the the cost for a gunshot wound, um, and this is in Los Angeles County. But but a hospital visit um, for a gunshot wound, the average cost of that is four hundred twenty six thousand um, dollars, and we have over one thousand gunshot wounds a year uh, in Los Angeles. Um, so, so that's very, very expensive, and and then that's the cost of treating it after the fact. Um, if we invest in prevention, and just this is one number to use, um, for example, schools. The more we invest in schools and and in uh, and in kids going to school, the annual cost of what we spend on kids in schools in Los Angeles is about eight thousand uh, dollars per child per year. Um, so when you start to look at that in terms of the healthcare cost um, for focusing on, you know, gunshot violence response uh, versus in some of these these collaborative uh, prevention efforts, um, I think it, it really helps to make the case. Wow. Okay. I think you thank you so much, Kylie. And I think that four hundred twenty-six thousand dollar figure definitely got some people's attention here. Kylie, thanks uh, for framing that. Uh, we'll circle back with you during uh, Q and A. Uh, Thea James from Boston Medical Center. Um, you're, we've been referring uh, to you as sometimes those who are on the front line of uh, confronting what's going on. As an emergency physician, you were called into action by the city's mayor at the time in 2006 in response to a major uptick in gun violence then and that led to a whole bunch of interesting things that you've been doing in Boston and nationally so tell us about the violence intervention advocacy program and uh, some of what you started to tell us earlier uh, in this hour about trauma-informed care thanks Thea 
Thank you. So the Violence Intervention Advocacy Program is uh, as started in 2006, and in that first year, and, 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 and basically the program was started here because Boston Medical Center receives the majority of shootings and stabbings in Boston. The, the majority of them are brought here. And uh, there was there had been a, uh, a lull in shootings back in the 80s, but then when there was a resurgence in 2006, the mayor uh, spoke to us. He convened a bunch of people together to talk about what we could do, and um, it was decided that we would do it here because the majority of them are brought here. So uh, this sort of goes a little bit about what Gilbert was saying, actually. Uh, the, the first year we were uh, doing a bedside intervention where people worked here seven days a week from 4 p.m. to midnight. We hired two violence intervention advocates, we call them. And in that first year, it was basically bedside um, intervention where we would learn mostly who our patients were, who our clients were, how they wound up like this, um, how they wound up injured, what were their lives like, what would be the challenges to helping them, what would we need to put together to be able to help them and what would be the barriers and uh, in that first year through learning all of that information we did exactly what Kylie speaks about we put together a lot of community-based partners to help us to provide services for these young people and then in the second year we actually went out to where Gilbert was affiliated with before caught in the crossfire to learn how to do a case management model and since that time that's basically what we do we have case managers to um, uh, provide services for these young people so the way it works everyone who comes to our hospital with a shooting or a stabbing injury is placed on a protected list and uh, we provide every day we go through that list and every single person on the list is assigned both one of our violence intervention advocates as well as a mental health health person or clinician who is part of the community violence response team part of the trauma service here so the work is hard we make it hard on ourselves because we don't sift through what comes through the door shot uh, as a shooting or a stabbing injury every person is assigned someone and what we do is um, initially find develop a rapport with that person find out what their needs are going to be develop trust and that type thing and then we help them to uh, uh, set up a plan both um, for physical and uh, emotional injuries and we walk them through that healing process and sort of provide the sort of support services they're going to need to help we also provide the same services for family members um, so we have uh, three advocates we have a family support coordinator and um, we have uh, um, a research data manager and a program manager and uh, we work with other people in the community uh, the Boston Public Health Commission for example um, to help uh, provide services uh, for these young people one of our advocates is dedicated to the highest risk population uh, in the city and uh, he works specifically with a list of two or three hundred young people who have been identified as not at risk but proven risk and the one thing I'd like to say that Gilbert uh, spoke about is we find that that one caring adult person um, is the single most important link to success but we find that those young people who have that intervention from that person uh, are less likely to come in the hospital either re-injured or if they've been engaged before they get injured they don't wind up here so it does make uh, quite a bit of a difference to have that one caring adult linking a person and following them and uh, uh, you know through their life and providing them with things they need. 
let me just ask you very quickly, and just because I want to make sure everyone got it, I found it so such a good concept, and maybe those joining today were more informed about this uh, than I was. But want to make sure people understand what's the definition of trauma informed care. So trauma informed care. Well, first of all, you know, trauma, which can be either being injured or being ex- uh, being violently injured, uh, being exposed to violence, even if you're not injured, living in communities where it's unsafe and that type of thing, it can cause neurobiologic and psychosocial effects uh, in people such as hypervigilance, hyperarousability, aggressive responses to fear and feeling threatened, and can also cause depression and other things uh, associated with post-traumatic stress and anxiety. So trauma-informed care means that you understand this, you understand manifestations of trauma, and you understand that um, you don't want to re-traumatize people inadvertently or punish them for uh, the signs uh, and symptoms that they exhibit of trauma. So you used um, you used that knowledge in how you deal with them. I guess I can give a, a quick example. If you have a young person who's a patient in the hospital, for example, and uh, when people come to take you to physical therapy or uh, whatever engagement the health uh, staff might want to have with you, and say you're just you're traumatized and the young person is hiding under a sheet or, or not talking, not speaking, just not responding to people, you know, many people, particularly because they're shot or stabbed, might uh, deem this as bad behavior or being uncooperative. But if you understand the manifestations of trauma, instead of, uh, you know, maybe uh, blaming the person for this or, uh, or, or maybe uh, punishing them for this behavior, you would actually understand that the person, this is a manifestation of trauma. And so it would be very, very careful not to re-traumatize the person, but instead provide a, a, an environment of safety and empowerment to help them um, to move forward in a safe way, in a healthy way. Okay, thank you, Dr. James. The, uh, and we did put a link up there uh, here in the chat box for the National Violence Prevention Network. The work at Boston Medical Center uh, has served, if I'm understanding this correctly, the, uh, as a model uh, for others around the country. There are many initiatives and projects. This is a particular one uh, that is hospital-based uh, in a number of cities, and we have uh, where they're all people are working on the in. in from the perspective that Thea has been talking about and also uh, sharing and learning together. So people will take advantage of that. Um, all right, Rachel, uh, we're coming to you, the Prevention Institute. Um, so you're working on underlying causes of all sorts of issues, including uh, gun violence. So as you're listening to our other panelists today and sort of thinking about uh, what what uh, the goals of the Prevention Institute are um, connect some of these underlying um, things for us, and we've got a bunch of uh, slides that you provided us with, Rachel. Thanks. Thanks. Well, as Gilbert already noted, violence really is a core community health issue. People can't walk outside or won't let their children play in communities that aren't safe. Businesses don't want to invest in the communities that aren't safe. And um, fear of violence and an exposure to violence is really traumatic, as Dr. James was just talking about. And, and so that violence and fear of violence creates a toxic and unhealthy environment. So 
On the other side, being safe is really a core element of health, and having a safe community is fundamental to being a healthy community. So as people have begun to really recognize and understand violence as a health issue, it's changed the approaches people take to address it, and it's brought more people to the table to be part of the solution. And I think Kylie really um, spoke to that when she talked about LAVPC. In my opening remarks, I mentioned our National Unity Initiative, and that work is really centered around utilizing a public health approach, which means addressing the underlying causes of violence through a coordinated and multi-sector approach. It means looking beyond individuals to really what's going on in their environment and in their community. For too many young people today, violence is really the most pervasive part of their environment and of their growing up experience. And since violence is a learned behavior, we can expect that when young people grow up with a lot of violence, it puts them at risk for being victimized or perpetrating violence. So the public health approach really looks at the whole community um, and not only at what the police can do, but also at parks and recreation, economic development, public works, transportation, schools, public health, and the healthcare system can do. And so through this work, we've really learned a lot. And the first is um, that violence has traditionally been looked at as a criminal justice issue, which has meant that too often we're waiting until after it's occurred to address it. And of course, healthcare practitioners really bear witness to the worst possible outcomes of waiting for the aftermath. Importantly, and this is really the second key lesson, violence is preventable. There's really some skepticism that remains about that, and we see that phenomenon in prevention across all kinds of topics. For something that's already been addressed, like getting lead out of paint and gasoline, people look back and they forget the challenges of that and say, well, that was easy, but this thing ahead of us is really, you know, impossible. And we see this with violence because it feels big and overwhelming. But we do know the strategies that can prevent violence in the first place. Um, Minneapolis, a city that was once called um, Murderopolis, implemented a comprehensive plan and has seen greater than 50% drops in juvenile crime and homicides um, sustained over years. With its comprehensive gang reduction and youth development plan, LA has seen 57% reductions in gang homicides citywide. And I think it's important to note that these drops are not by accident. They're because of ongoing, committed, coordinated, and comprehensive efforts. So, um, so we know prevention works and we know violence is preventable. And I'm glad to be talking on WIHI today because the healthcare community is such an important part of the solution and has an important stake in this. In addition to bearing witness, the healthcare system also bears a lot of the cost. And Kylie gave, you know, great numbers in terms of um, how much it really is to treat um, injuries from violence. And we also know that other health problems are exacerbated by violence. Um, for example, chronic diseases related to healthy eating and active living. We know violence is really a barrier to healthy eating and active living. So at Prevention Institute, we've been really attuned to the opportunities that are emerging out of health reform. There are specific models in health systems like at the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, Community Transformation Grants. But I think more broadly, it's opened up opportunities to think about health in a new way. And it's clear to us that good health requires this braiding of quality health care and community prevention that supports health and safety in the first place. So just um, quickly as an example, we developed a model called the Community-Centered Health Homes. 
And this model really underscores the importance of the community environment in supporting health and safety outcomes and explores the roles and opportunities for healthcare providers. Um, and as healthcare providers identify particular needs of patients, they can also better understand the effect of the community environment on their patients' health and take steps to modify that environment or advocate for those changes. The emergence of hospital-based intervention programs um, and trauma-informed care that Dr. James talked about is really critical and an important development. And I think it's also important to focus on the broader community environment. So, for example, with um, violence, it was an ER doctor in Boston, our colleague Dr. Deborah Prother-Stiss, who was, one, was frustrated at sewing up young people from gunshot wounds and started asking, what can we do before? So in addition to advocating for prevention and a public health solution, she developed one of the nation's first violence prevention curricula and then helped coordinate a range of efforts on the ground in Boston that were all part of the so-called Boston miracle when not a single young person was killed by violence in a three-year period. So healthcare providers and systems really have a tremendous role to play, and the advocacy they do for prevention strategies are the same kind of strategies that can be supportive of victims of violence as they return to the community and become part of the solution, like we've seen um, from Gilbert's story. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, really, really uh, appreciate that, uh, Rachel. Lots of good stuff, lots of great resources. A reminder to everyone, uh, don't despair. Anything, Any link that we put into the chat, every one of those links will be on a resource document that's posted along with the archive of today's program, the audio, by tomorrow morning on the WIHI archive page for this show on IHI.org. Uh, also, you can download the chat as a reminder and all the slides uh, when you get off the uh, program today online, you're prompted to do so. So, John, it looks like people pretty much know how to chat. You want to just make a quick reminder. Uh, we kind of crept into the second half hour of our program because we have such great uh, substance here to talk about, but we'll get to as many of your questions and comments as possible. Yep, just a reminder, if you're going to send a question in the chat, send to all participants uh, right below the chat box. Um, that way everybody here can see it and read it, and uh, including the folks at home. All right, thanks. So people are doing a great job, thanks, John, on on the chat, uh, sharing a lot of information, and that is one way that we think of the chat on this program is for you all to network with one another, and then you have a resource you can walk away with and uh, refer to even after the program. We invite your questions uh, for our guests as well. Um, Gilbert, or um, I maybe I'll sort of throw this out to everyone. Several people have mentioned that school-based health clinics uh, are becoming um, a real entry point um, for um, a lot of the work, the framing that we're uh, talking about uh, today. Gilbert, let, excuse me, Gilbert. Let me uh, put that one uh, to you. Is 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 that a real um, sort of um, a, a great uh, promising area? You think for some of the innovation we're talking about now? Um, Matt, yeah, I'd like to comment on that one. Um, I'm out here in uh, Colorado, as I mentioned earlier, visiting Finica Capetina, and they have uh, a great model in community health. Um, but it, it, uh, I've been seeing this trend across the nation with different hospitals really inviting um, community health clinics um, as part of their healthcare system. They've been very effective. Um, some of the conversations that I have heard um, are around uh, you know, youth coming up to, to uh, so they have a P. 
pediatrics on um, primary care physician on grounds, um, making things more reliable for patients. There's continuity. Um, so it, I've been hearing nothing but great things about community-based health clinics, um, and, I, and I really think that it's a great segue into the community, um, being that school sites are typically neutral zones for, for a lot of our uh, kids and, and parents. Okay. Um, so I think it's a great idea. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, some questions uh, popping up about uh, statistics around violence, uh, in this case in the state of, of New Mexico. Um, I, I, there's all sorts of sources, federal and state and county, I'm sure, around where you find crime stats. Uh, does anybody want to uh, just, you know, you were several of you were talking about data um, as an important place, sort of knowing what you're dealing with, uh, and I'm curious what you might advise. Um, Kylie, uh, shall I ask you that question about sort of going after data so you kind of know what's going on? Uh, about where to where to look? Well, yeah, people? where to look. Uh, in other words, somebody is curious about statistics of violence in the state of New Mexico. So that's just an example. We don't have to talk about just where, where do people go to start getting uh, some of that information. Uh, the CDC is a great place to start. Uh, their Centers for Disease Control, they um, they have, uh, Rachel, you can maybe help me out here, the, um, what is it, the National Center, Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the Centers for Disease Control. They tend to have a lot of that uh, nationwide data. Okay. Yeah, that's true. They do. Okay. They absolutely do. Okay, that's that's the thank you. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, Thea, if you could. Um, I think it was Kylie who talked about um, getting hospital data uh, as a way to make the case for prevention. And I was thinking about you at that moment uh, and what you're learning about uh, how your data can be powerful, either at Boston Medical Center in the Boston area or in this uh, national network of hospital-based violence. Sure, I think that I think um, you know in Massachusetts, basically to get the statewide data, we get it from uh, the Department of Public Health. But um, uh, what we're finding uh, from the data that that we have, we're using our data, or trying to use our data to do uh, to show uh, for, to support funding and sustainability, to show that the programs, the interventions, actually can work, to build uh, and use the data to show uh, best practices models. And also, from a policy standpoint, we're also uh, trying to, to, to use the data to, to show that perhaps we can bill for the sort of services that, uh, that we have, but there are very few um, uh, things in place right now to allow us to do that. So, um, you know, we're using the, the data to show outcomes and best practices and, and uh, um, you know, to, 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 with an endpoint of uh, being sustainability. Okay, thank you. Matt, this is Rachel. I'd yes, like to add ahead. a couple sure. comments about sure. data. So I think one thing that's you really important... You want to pull the microphone uh, just a little bit away from, from your <laughs> voice there, your mouth? Sorry, that's I was okay. reading all the comments that said we were all... Quiet. So, you know, I think one of the important things about multi-sector collaboration is that all these different sectors bring different data that together tell the story. So, you know, prime data um, will capture some of what's going on, but might have 
not necessarily capture what hospital data or public health data captures. And of course, Rachel, I want to apologize. Their- Hold on one sec. For some reason, your your line is breaking up, and I just don't want to uh, miss. I don't know if anything. If there's any kind of a loose connection there. If any anything you could, can try and tighten. I just don't want us to miss what you're saying. Let's see. How does that? Well, is that better? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so each sector has data that, when you put it together, you get a much better um, complete picture of what's going on, and that that can really help drive the right kind of strategies in the right kind of places. The other thing that I'll say is that there's an emerging model um, called the Cardiff model, which really uses emergency data to help inform specific strategy interventions. And so, by really um, utilizing data of coming in for what injuries and from where, that's really enabled um, people to zoom in on places where there's a very high risk of violence and develop policies and strategies that can be very responsive to what's going on. Okay, so here's what you could do, Rachel, if you don't mind, um, is if you don't mind chatting in, putting in the chat box there, and to all participants, the emergency uh, data um, repository you were just talking about. I'm sorry, for some reason, your your line keeps going in and out, but uh, we almost got it. Maybe some people uh, heard it better than I did. So I think you, it's a card is something, but maybe you could just chat that in. Okay, I can I can hear her doing so. Um, all right, I'm trying to look at some um, of of the questions here. Ah, somebody just all right. The Cardiff model utilizes ER data. So Cardiff, C A R D I F F. Thank you for for that. I really appreciate it. Um, who wants to talk a little bit about um, healthcare and um, kind of the police community and what we're discovering about that collaboration uh, in particular? We haven't really said too much about uh, the police, and sometimes it seems um, that's all we hear about um, <laughs> when the discussions uh, are, are through the media um, and kind of what the police are doing. So, um, Dr. James, maybe I'll start with you, kind of about what's going on uh, in terms of healthcare and and sort of community collaboration in the police. One of uh, there is a program here in Boston um, that falls under the Boston Public Health Commission, and again, one of our interventionists or case managers is specifically um, assigned to that population. So the police have um, identified, uh, again, two or three hundred of the most uh, at-risk or uh, proven risk young people in the city, and um, our interventions have been targeted toward that group of young people, and Thankfully, it is a one-way stream of information. You know, the police provide that information or provide the data without any, um, you know, expectation of uh, anything in return. And that has been uh, quite useful to us and allows us to identify people and uh, either prevent anything uh, from happening to them and also providing the same services that we would provide for them had they come in as an injured young person. Mm-hmm. So that's been quite that's been uh, quite useful to us. Thank you. Kylie, what about uh, for you uh, in terms of police? 
Uh, I think, um, y- you know, I mean, I, I <laughs> this is a challenging question. <laughs> Big one, uh, yeah. You, you know, I, I think there there is, uh, you know, that, that, that police are often invested in very heavily when we talk about increasing community safety, and I think there's a lot of resistance in the communities, uh, certainly among our membership, uh, where, where there is a lot of violence uh, because the, the it, it, it's seen as an antagonistic relationship, and I think they're seen as a investment in support at the exclusion of investment in prevention and in community strengthening. Um, and, and we certainly see that with some of the, you know, you mentioned schools before, um, you know, the, the desire to... Um, to focus on student development and changing uh, school climate rather than bringing in more uh, more law enforcement. So it can be challenging because law enforcement also does need to be a partner in a lot of this. And uh, I'd invite Gilbert to, to pipe in on some of this. I know one of the places in Los Angeles where we have a very uh, progressive police chief, Charlie Beck, who, who's uh, really done some great work uh, turning around the LAPD um, and really focusing on... Um, uh, having the police really connect to the community and and a bit of um, I could say cultural competency among the police um, and one of the main things that that he did was he incentivized he, he basically flipped the uh, the incentives uh, for for his officers um, to say rather than you know having an arrest quota um, we want to say you know the more kids you keep out of the system um, is how we will base sort of you know we'll we'll do the assessment of how well you're doing your job by how many kids you actually keep out. Um, and, and so flipping that uh, incentive, um, again, to emphasize the prevention, to, to emphasize uh, community strengthening, I think is where that, that partnership really works best. Mm-hmm. Gilbert, you want... Gilbert, I'd love for you to pipe in on this. Yeah, yeah thanks. thanks. Sure, sure, Kylie. Um, yeah, I just, I just um, piggyback off of your comments. I really uh, love the focus that uh, Chief Beck has. And um, it's really, it really has created a, a change in, in our communities. I, I've seen a, a huge shift in, in, in the way um, policing is, is uh, enforced and, and looked at in our communities of color. Um, I, I also think that you know they've, they've gotten to, to a realization that for the first time in our country, we, we have over two million people incarcerated behind bars. And just in the state of California, we're spending more than ten million dollars a year on. The, uh, budget for the California Department of Corrections. And in education, for example, we're spending $7.1 billion on all the UC and Cal State universities combined. And so, so I think there's a huge push, um, and, 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 not, and I'm appreciating what's happening, um, as, as using Charlie Beck as an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that. Uh, Dr. James, um, I want to ask you a question, which is um, sometimes when if you just say to walk into a healthcare organization or sit in a meeting, you start talking about violence. Um, one of the first things that someone might assume that you're talking about is uh, violence perpetrated against healthcare staff. And while that could be the subject of a whole other program, and that's not not exactly where I'm going. It is a way that in which I want to ask you, what about the attitudes? Uh, even in the what we often think of as the wonderful emergency department where people kind of see it all and do get a quick education, but what are the attitudes that maybe uh, continue to need to be worked on? 
That's a very good question. And actually, probably for all of us around the country, everybody involved in the network and, and else, elsewhere, um, is at the, probably the top of our uh, list of the next big thing to do. Um, it's the one piece that's missing in terms of what we've uh, addressed. So... You know, it, you know, a lot, most people who feel, many people feel like if a person is shot or stabbed, they must be a bad person, you know, and I feel like, uh, and I, I actually, I, I, it's more than feel, I know that a lot of young, a lot of people have this um, opinion, you know, about these young people, and I, I don't disparage them at all, because they're just going, you know, by what they know, they just don't understand the nuances, the complexities, um, and the various different things to, that lead to people, uh, winding up an injured person, you know, multi-generational things, social determinants of health, all these things. And so um, many people have a, a, a not-so-positive um, opinion um, and perception about these young people. And so, and unfortunately, particularly in a, in a healthcare environment, um, it can affect the way that people approach them and deal with them as well as their um, their families. And when I was speaking earlier about trauma-informed care, I guess I neglected to say that it shouldn't be used limited to healthcare environments, but any environment in which young people uh, will interact, which places where people will interact with young people who've been injured, you know, including like education, social services, mental health, all those various different locations. So yes, to answer your question, that is the one uh, area uh, that is missing in terms of uh, what we have yet to address, but we're all working on it. Mm-hmm. And I think using things like educational um, uh, curriculums and things like that to address to address these type things, even with public safety in hospitals, you know, they may see young people uh, responding to grief in ways that uh, may appear to be or may be perceived as uh, risky and dangerous and that type thing and being able to understand uh, what that behavior is about will help in the way in which they intervene. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And if anybody wants to uh, jump in on that thought in terms of just kind of attitudes uh, about making, you know, whatever kinds of assumptions are made, the ways in which some of this may be traumatic for staff, uh, people are afraid of violence coming right through the door, of, of following somebody through the door, actually, who may be a, a victim uh, of, of gunshot. Uh, feel free, anyone, uh, to, to jump in there. Matt, can I just say just one more thing? Oh, sure. Go right ahead, Thea. I just want to say that uh, in the trauma room, when the kid comes in shot or stabbed, there are a lot of people rushing the young person and saying, what happened, who did this, or whatever. And they usually just lie there with their eyes closed and they don't say anything. And sometimes I can just approach the bedside and say to the person, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And they open their eyes and big tears rolling down their face and this type thing. So I'd just like to say that once we've gotten to know young people, these are the warmest, most vulnerable, and in many cases, extremely uh, intelligent and smart young people. So they're humans first, but I think just because of, you know, because they're injured, they're perceived as, uh, you know, another type of person. All right. Thank you so much, Thea. It's very, very, those are very thoughtful uh, comments there. Uh, I, I see we're sort of five minutes uh, to the end here. So maybe as we, I'm going to just go around the horn, maybe we'll still have time to come back to you, Thea, one more time. Love to give anyone an opportunity to add to anything that we've, um, I threw out a couple 
couple of questions, but anything you'd like uh, to say about that or just something you might want to leave us with. Um, Rachel, why don't I start with you? All right, is my line okay? Your line is okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, good. Apparently, it's not, uh, everyone is not experiencing your line in the same way, so I apologize on that. Go ahead. No worries. I mean, you know, I think that this touches a little bit on, um, on the last uh, question you were asking, but maybe in a different way. I mean, really the face of, um, of most violence in this country, it both um, perpetrators and victims is young men and boys of color. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, we've been um, socialized to be fearful. We know there's a conflation in the media between race and crime and youth and violence. And, you know, I think that has implications for how we've treated this as a criminal justice issue, why we're up to two million people incarcerated, and that the fear that has come along with that conflation has really driven a lot of the policies and the fear that we have. So really, you know, I go back to the point I made before that we know this is a preventable issue. The 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 real challenge is social and political will. And I think that um, we're missing that in part of because of who the victims are. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for your participation today and all your help in prepping for the program. Kylie, uh, some thoughts from you. Sure. I think I'm going to echo a lot of, uh, a lot of what Rachel said and, and also just continue to emphasize, I think, as we, as we open the conversation, really talking about collaboration and cross fields, um, you know, bringing everybody in to find solutions. Uh, that it's it's part of it is about treating the individuals, but but sort of keeping all of those levels uh, in mind. That that we also you know as Gilbert said, we have to be working in the communities to recognize uh, how can we create change in the communities, and and then also thinking on the policy level. You know how can we how can we reset what the default setting is uh, to focus on prevention and to promote positive behavior. Um, you know in in terms of cultural norms and social. Also, in terms of uh, in terms of the the communities where where folks live. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Kylie. Great perspective. A lot of resources there. We're so grateful uh, that you could be part of, of all of this. Gilbert, uh, some thoughts that you might have. And by the way, one thing that's also been on my mind throughout is, uh, and again, might be a whole other program that we could develop is what might, might we learn or are we learning from uh, how healthcare and how other communities are addressing some of these issues outside uh, the U.S. Very important. So, uh, um, I don't know, Gilbert, if that's anything that, you know, you've been looking at, um, but uh, maybe that's one, one direction we might also pursue uh, for future. Well, I'll, I'll touch uh, briefly on that, just uh, based on the fact that this year I have the privilege of being around um, five fellows from um, the U.K., one from Denmark, one from Canada, and one from Qatar in the Middle East, and uh, just they're, they're, they're the shock that they have over the amount of gun violence that happens in this country, and um, I'm learning from them on how their systems are really aligned with the social care uh, that needs to happen in our communities. Um, so, so there's a lot of learning to do there um, from, from uh, people from European countries and, and other countries around the world. Um, I just wanted to uh, end with really uh, going back to connecting the, the dots. Um, so IHI uses the AAA methodology 
um, where we talk about improving population health, um, improving the community health, and reducing costs. Um, I think today's show has has really pointed out some of these uh, way, some of the ways that we can do this. Um, you know, in population health, are, are we looking at our, our physicians looking at their panels and developing registries around patients that might be uh, associated with with violence or or have been injured with violence? Um, community health, um, should we invest in more community health centers and school-based uh, clinics, um, which are showing great successes? Um, and of course, reducing cost. Um, if you want to make a business case out of it, um, you know, the cost of uh, just in 2013, uh, we spent about $2 billion a year to treat victims of firearm-related injuries. Um, and also, one out of every three patients hospitalized for gun injuries is uninsured. Um, so there's plenty of, of, of ways to make a case, a business case, to reduce violence. Um, and can we harness those dollars um, to prevent um, violence? Could we invest those dollars, a reinvestment um, of, of, uh, of those billions of dollars being spent um, on, on the cost of violence across the United States? All right. Thank you, Gilbert. Uh, Thea, quick uh, final word, and then uh, we'll, we'll say goodbye to our guests, and we're going to invite people who can maybe to stick around for a few minutes and learn a little bit about our Office Practice Summit coming up, very much focused on the community and population health. Uh, but, uh, Dr. James, I'm going to give you uh, the last word here. Well, just one thing, uh, just one single thing. Um, I just want to talk about the National uh, Network of Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Programs that was started by eight programs, and now we are we have uh, 26 programs and 12 emerging programs. We have disseminated the programs all across the U.S., and we have our newest program abroad in London, England, called uh, Oasis Youth Support Services. And um, so, I just wanted to say there is hope on the on the uh, uh, horizon because we have disseminated uh, these programs and we provide technical assistance to people who'd like to start programs and uh, we focus on policy research, workforce, and mental health. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. James, Thea James, Rachel Davis, Kylie Schilling, and Gilbert Salinas. Uh, if anyone ever had any clue how many emails transpire amongst all of us as we prepare for this and uh, people give up their time very generously to share some perspective and some thinking, these are huge topics. We're very well aware of that. We thank you for being such troopers, our audience today, to just start to wade in uh, to some of this. And I say start, uh, me more from the perspective of talking about this more uh, from the healthcare uh, vantage point because we know people have been working on this for some time. So my thanks again to our guests. Thanks for your interest in the topic of today, which was reducing gun violence and what role uh, healthcare can begin to play in some ongoing coalitions and really innovative efforts out there. Um, I want to remind people if you have any questions whatsoever, you can um, email info at IHI.org. Now, as you may well know, the people who help make WIHI possible are not only Patty Knight here, but Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and our new Northeastern co-op, Tala Augusain. I hope I've got that right, Tala. I'll work on that. And we also always hope you enjoy some of the music that opens and closes WIHI. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, thanks for joining. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.